Just remain standing if you would. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Mark 10, verse 35. We're going to bring Mark chapter 10 to a close today. I'm going to talk quickly, so uh, listen quickly this morning. Beginning in verse number 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. What is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over you, over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be my leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. And then verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 46, then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. Blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man. Cheer up. They said, come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go for your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see and he followed Jesus down the road. Holy Spirit, I just pray that in these next few minutes together, as we spend time around your word, I pray and I ask that you would speak to every heart in this room today. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to hear my words, but help us to hear your word and your word alone this morning. God, help me to decrease and help you to increase and be the focus of our time together. And Holy Spirit, help me to speak your word with boldness, with clarity, with simplicity. And Lord, as we get to the end of Mark chapter 10 today, Lord, I pray that the request of the blind man would certainly be the request of all of us in this room today. Open our eyes. We want to see. We want to see you more clearly than we ever have before. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are newer with us, we have been spending um, quite a few weeks, maybe I should say months. We've been in the Gospel of Mark, though we have taken a lot of detours over the course of time. But we are, we are methodically and slowly working our way through Mark's Gospel. Um, and, and really, we are approaching what, are refer, what really is referred to as the, the passion events uh, of Jesus. He is nearing Jerusalem, getting ready to enter into Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 11 will actually begin his, his entrance into Jerusalem, what is referred to as Palm Sunday. And um, we've been working through Mark's gospel, and now that we're reaching a very critical point in, in the gospel, in the ministry, in the life of Jesus, uh, things are starting to kind of come together at this point. We've reached the point in Mark's gospel 
where Jesus is now nearing the city of Jerusalem. We read this in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, says they were now on the way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, I don't know if anyone has ever been to um, Israel before, but Jerusalem sits um, uh, up on a, a hill. And, and so basically all around it is this valley and they are on their way. They're heading to the city of Jerusalem and nearing it very soon. It's here in the city of Jerusalem Jerusalem in the holy city where Jesus is going to fulfill the purpose that he came in the first place. We read these words in Mark chapter 10, verse, 30, verse 33 and 34. It says, listen, Jesus said, we're going up to Jerusalem. Why are we going there? Well, he answers that question where the son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. This is the third time that there is a prophecy uh, spoken of Jesus's passion, his, his death, and eventually his resurrection. This is the third time in a very short period of time that, that Jesus references this in Mark's gospel. So while they are on this journey, and as he and the disciples near his final destination, they are about ready to enter the city of Jerusalem here very soon. But on their way, Jesus encounters two very unique groups of people, two of which are already with him, James and John, and a blind man he's going to encounter along the side of the road by the name of Bartimaeus. And both of these individuals um, or groups of people, they have some very unique requests of Jesus. Now, we have James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee. They were the two first called disciples of Jesus. If you remember, James and John, they were out on their boat, they were fishing, and Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so James and John, they left their boats and they went and they followed Jesus. Eventually you have Andrew or Peter, Andrew and Peter that will join the party as well. But James and John essentially are two of the disciples that have spent the most time with Jesus. They were called first and, and they've spent now about three years with Jesus, listening to him teach and experiencing miracles. And yet they have this very interesting request of Jesus as they near Jesus's final destination. And then you have Bartimaeus, who is a blind man along the side of the road. Both of these groups of people or all three of these individuals, they wanted something from Jesus, but their wants were radically different. What James and John requested of Jesus was so much different than what blind Bartimaeus requested of Jesus. And I want to spend just a little bit of time this morning unpacking the request of James and John as well as the request of Bartimaeus and see the, the contrast between these two requests and how it relates to us this morning. I want to begin with the request of James and John. Let's read the text again. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 35. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came over, they spoke to him. Teacher, they said, We want you to do us a favor. Um, any of you ever asked that question, whether it was to a parent or to a friend, hey, can you do me a favor? And they give you that look like, what do you want me to do? <laughs> 
What, and, and sometimes it's like they're being all not your kids. Sometimes your kids are like, you know, they, they clean the bathroom for you or they, you know, they clean, they made the bed for you and they come and they just kind of stand before you and you don't even have to wait for them to ask. You just say, what do you want? You know, they want something. Um, and, and so all of us have been here. Well, well, Jesus, Jesus knows that James and John, I mean, he, he knows their thoughts. He, he, he's been with these guys now for three years. He knows them well. Well, they come to Jesus and they say, we want you to do us a favor. So Jesus says, well, what is your request? And they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and one on your left. I'm certain Jesus had this smirk on his face when he heard that request. But I want to talk about the request of James and John just for a few moments this morning. What were they really interested in? What were they requesting? What were they asking of Jesus? They were interested in being, sorry, that should say being granted special status and rank in God's kingdom. That's what they were looking for. They, they wanted places of honor, status and rank, position in, in, in God's glorious kingdom. So, so why do they desire this? Well, let me tell you a little thing about James and John and how they understood who Jesus was and what is, they had their own perception of what God's kingdom was going to look like. They understood Jesus to be the one that was going to return to the royal city of Jerusalem. And they were expecting Jesus to come and to restore the fallen kingdom that was presently being oppressed by the Roman people. They had this idea that Jesus was going to come in riding on this white horse and he was going to give them victory over the oppression of the Roman people. And so this is the kind of kingdom that James and John thought of when Jesus comes into this royal city. Their primary concern was establishing an earthly rule and reign that would mimic the reign and rule of King David. Anytime they talked about restoring the kingdom or, or, or setting up a, a throne and a kingdom, immediately, especially devout Jewish people, immediately they would go back to David's kingdom when he ruled and when he reigned. And so in, his, in their minds, in James and John, what they're requesting of Jesus is they're, they're expecting Jesus to come in and, and to establish this incredible earthly kingdom, just like David did, where there was peace and where there was no, no, um, no issues with other nations around them. And James or John are like, I want to be a part of that kingdom and I want to sit on your right and on your left. Therefore, when this Davidic-like kingdom on earth was established, they wanted they wanted places of honor and prestige, the king's table. I mean, they're, they're probably thinking in their mind, well, you called us first. I mean, we were the first two to say yes to following you, Jesus. So certainly, don't we deserve this position of, of honor and rank and, and status in your kingdom? I mean, we've been with you for three years, and, and James and John, along with Peter, I mean, they were kind of the, the inner three that got to experience some things that others didn't get to experience. So I'm certain in the minds of James and John, when they requested this of Jesus, they, they thought that we are certainly deserving of this wonderful privilege. What's interesting is according to Old Testament tradition, uh, the place of honor was actually the seat to the right and to the left. That's why they said, we, we wanna have the, the, the seat to the right and left of you, Jesus. Look at Second King, or 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak on Adonijah's behalf. The king rose from his throne to meet her, and he bowed down before her. And when he sat down on his throne again, the king ordered that a throne be brought for his mother, and she sat at his right hand. 
Certainly a place of honor for the the mother of the king to sit at the right hand of this prestigious individual. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So James and John understood that, that a position at the right and the left, the king's table was a place that was reserved for the most prestigious, high honored individuals. And that was the request. We wanna be in those seats. We wanna have that position, that status, that rank, unlike anybody else. These were the seats that they longed for by their Davidic king. But clearly, James and John, they were ignorant of what they were really requesting of Jesus. Jesus hinted at their ignorance. What did he say in Mark 10, verse 38? Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are really asking. Certainly, they had an idea. I mean, they they wanted position, they wanted status, but they didn't really know what was meant by holding that place of honor. And Jesus made sure that they were aware of what they were really requesting. They would have to share, first of all, Jesus said, you would have to share in the cup of suffering. Mark 10, verse 38, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering and, uh, that I am about to drink? And so what Jesus is doing now is he says, let me, let me explain to you, James and John, what you're really asking. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I know what you're really longing for. It's all about position and rank and status for you. But let me tell you, And let me explain to you, James and John, what you are really asking, what what is gonna really be expected of you if you so desire this position. In the Old Testament, the cup of wine, it was a metaphor for God's wrath of judgment that would be poured upon human sin and rebellion. Look at Psalm 75, verse eight. It says, for the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices, and he pours out the wine in judgment, and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. This cup, this cup of judgment, represented God's divine judgment and punishment of sins, which the Son of Man alone bears in the place of the guilty. Look at this, Mark chapter 14, verse 24. He said to them, Jesus, just before his crucifixion, his death, and eventually his resurrection, he would say to his disciples as they were sharing together in the cup, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. And it is poured out as a sacrifice for many. So there is this sense that they would have to share in this cup of suffering. The cup of suffering was a a metaphor to describe the the divine punishment that God was going to pour out upon the sins of many. And it was only the Son of Man who could take the place and receive that punishment for the sacrifice that was necessary. They would also have to share in his baptism. He says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? In the Greek, the vocabulary that is used or the word that is used for baptism oftentimes spoke of being overwhelmed by danger or disaster. So Jesus here is really referring to his passion event. Passion referred to his arrest, his, when he was being mocked and beaten and ridiculed, his crucifixion and eventually his resurrection. 
So he referred to those events as this baptism that he was going to have to encounter and encounter alone. Luke chapter 12, verse 50, he describes it like this. He says, I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. Listen to how he describes. He describes the passion events, his, his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. He describes these events as a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. And he says, I am under heavy burden until it is accomplished. This heavy burden, it indicated a sense of being overwhelmed. I mean, think about when Jesus is in the garden, when he's praying, just before uh, the Roman soldiers come to arrest him. Uh, and I believe it's in Luke's gospel that actually uh, gives us a little bit more detail. Luke was, Luke was a physician, and he was all about giving detail in his gospel. And what Luke does is Luke will actually describe the agony that Jesus was in and the overwhelming feeling that he had as he's praying. Because remember, he's praying, Father, if there's another way, let this cup, the cup of suffering, pass, but not my will, but yours be done. Well, what Luke does is he says he is in so much agony that Jesus is actually literally sweating drops of blood. And so when James and John say, we want places of honor. We want to sit at your left and your right. Jesus says, let me really tell you what you're asking because you don't know. Are you able to share in the cup of suffering? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be with this feeling of agony and this overwhelming sense? Are you able to, to die on the behalf of all of humanity to save them from their sins? Absolutely not. James and John foolishly thought they were qualified to share in the cup and the baptism of Jesus. And they said, oh yes, we are able. Absolutely, Jesus, no problem. You can just kind of hear the, um, the tone of their voice as they respond. Yeah, we can do that. We can certainly share in your baptism and in the cup of suffering. But this fate or this destiny was reserved for Jesus, the Son of Man, alone. Suffering of Jesus that would result in the salvation of humanity could only be accomplished by and through Jesus. There was no other human that had or has saving power. Only Jesus could save people from their sins. He was the perfect, spotless lamb of God. He was 100% God, 100% human. His sacrifice on the cross was all sufficient, and it accomplished when he said, it is finished. He said, it is paid in full. But James and John were not qualified to be able to do what Jesus and only Jesus could do when it came to saving humanity from sin. The mission, as we see it in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life as a ransom for many. Giving his life as a ransom for many was not the role or the job of James and John. It was the role for the son of man, for Jesus. That was his mission. And now he is getting ready to enter Jerusalem where he is going to fulfill his purpose here on earth. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, it says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was, he was whipped so we could be healed. 
James, John, and many Christ followers after them would still would and still do experience suffering, hardship, and great tribulation as a result of their commitment to make Christ known. We see that in Mark chapter 10, verse 39. He says, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. Acts chapter 12, look what happens to James, verse two. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. So certainly James experienced at some level that that cup of suffering because he died for his commitment and his faith to Jesus Christ. John, we read in Revelation chapter one, verse nine, John, he is exiled to the island of Patmos. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us, I was exiled to the island of Patmos. So both of these individuals, though they didn't really know what they were asking when they said, we want positions on your right and on your left, they both would experience the suffering of what it looked like to follow Jesus. James was killed with the sword. John was exiled to the island of Patmos, probably wished he was dead in the first place. And other disciples, Peter, he will be crucified upside down. Some will be filleted to death. Many, uh, some were burned to death. Some were killed, some were crucified. And so there were many who gave their life for Christ. Their one request I believe offers us great insight when it comes to following Christ. Three very simple things I want to mention. Number one, our mission on earth is not to save the lost, but to declare boldly, no matter the cost, the gospel where true life can be found. I want you to see that again. Our mission, us, believers, disciples, our mission is on earth is not to save the lost. I don't think there's any person in this room, I don't, And I don't think any of us in this room or any follower of Jesus Christ, we don't have the saving power that is necessary to bring a lost person from being blind to where they can see. That that power is reserved for the person of Jesus Christ, for for the Holy Spirit to do a work in somebody's heart to convict and challenge. But what we can certainly do is point as many people to the one who can bring life, the one who can save, the one who has the power to redeem and set free. It's not me. It's not the best pastor in the world. It's not um, it's not the best person in the world that you know. It's not the person who's never sinned, um, you know, in the last like three years. No, it's only Jesus. So our role is not to save, but is to declare boldly, no matter the cost, the gospel where true life can be found. And so let's make certain, and I, I, I think we've probably all at some level been guilty of what is called the savior complex. I mean, there's, there's times where we, we have such a desire, like, oh man, if I can, if I can just do this, I, I think they will get saved. Or, or if, if I can just do this one thing. And, and, and so we put all the pressure on ourselves to think that I've got to do something in order to bring that person salvation. Well, I, I certainly need to plant seeds and I, I need to declare boldly the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But at the end of the day, it is the work of the Holy Spirit can convicting and challenging, redeeming and bringing someone to a place where they say yes to Christ. So now this is not a cop-out. That doesn't mean we just sit back and let God do what he can do. No, we are partnering with him by proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and making certain that no matter the cost, no matter what it costs us, we need to make certain that we are always pointing people back to the one person that can save. Certainly, we want to bring them to church, but it's not the church that's going to save them. We want them to be in church so they can hear the presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ, and so the Holy Spirit can convict their hearts, and then they can say yes to following Jesus. Our our goal and our objective, our mission, is to put people in positions and places where they can hear and receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Can somebody get saved outside of a church? Yes, absolutely, And, and people do. 
But, but we still want to bring them into church because we want to put them in a position where they're going to hear the good news, where they're going to experience the presence of Jesus Christ, where they're going to hear words from God, where they're going to be in a place where others are gathering and worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Our mission on earth is not to save the lost, but to declare boldly no matter the cost. I got to go quickly. Number two, we cannot expect to share in God's glory unless we also submit ourselves to sharing in his suffering. We can't say, yes, I want to follow you, Christ, when it's easy. But when it gets hard and suffering is real, then I'm, I'm out. That's not a choice that we can make. You're either all in or you're all out. And, and Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know you the power of your resurrection. And so many people stop quoting the verse right there. I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. That sounds glorious, doesn't it? Sounds great. I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. But read on in that verse. It says, and share in the fellowship of your suffering. I want to know you, power of your resurrection, and share in the fellowship of your suffering. We cannot expect to share in God's glory unless we also submit ourselves sharing in his suffering. That's a sermon in and of itself. Um, I preached a little bit on suffering a few weeks ago, so I won't rehash that today. But think about Jesus. I mean, think about Jesus for a moment. Before there was resurrection and glory, there was a cross and crucifixion. And so Jesus couldn't bypass the crucifixion. He couldn't bypass the cross in order to get glory and resurrection. No, suffering preceded his glory. Number three, ideas of greatness and rank. They are reversed in the person of Jesus. One who humbly serves and gives their life for another is found to be great. That's certainly not the mentality of our world and our culture today. James and John would certainly reflect our culture. We want position. We want rank. We want status. We deserve it because you called us first. I mean, that's, that's the, the mindset of our culture in this 21st century. I deserve it. I, I should get it. But the mindset of Jesus is the total opposite. The one who gives his life for many, the one who serves and doesn't seek recognition, that's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom. And, and the kingdom values are totally different than our worldly values. And how do we know? Well, if you just take a look at what the worldly values are, just basically do the opposite, all right? That's usually how we know what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom. So here's a question I need to ask. Am I aspiring to a position of authority or am I looking to serve faithfully without any strings attached for the sake of the kingdom of God? That's a question we have to ask. Is my desire for position, status, and rank or am I just faithfully serving without any strings attached all for the sake of the kingdom of God, all so that the gospel can be heard and that lives can be changed. The size or the significance of the task should not matter at all. We should serve unto the Lord and do it obediently. Number two then, and I'll give this last point to you. So we see the request of James and John. They want position, they want rank, they want status. Well, let's look at the request of blind Bartimaeus completely different than the request of these two disciples. Keep in mind, two men who walked with Jesus, who, who saw miracles, who, who were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and all they were longing for was status and position because they thought they deserved it. But let's look at this man who really had no encounter with Jesus Christ whatsoever, but let's look at his request. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. 
I want to see. So what, what was the request of Bartimaeus? He wanted to physically see. This would be the last, what's very interesting here is this would be the very last miracle recorded by Mark before he enters into Jerusalem, which is very interesting because the very last miracle recorded by Mark before Jesus enters Jerusalem is he opens the eyes of a blind man to see. Think about where we've been thus far in the gospel of Mark and all throughout Mark, there were hints at, at the Messiah, hints at what was going to happen. But, but essentially, the eyes of even the disciples were still blinded. They, they didn't fully understand what Jesus was coming to do. I mean, Peter had a, a, a brief revelation. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then all of a sudden, when Jesus begins to describe what that looks like, Peter's like, no, you're not going to die. You're not going to the cross. I'll make sure that I'm there with you. And then what does Jesus say? Peter, get behind me, Satan. So all throughout Mark's gospel, uh, certainly the, the, the blindness is starting to come off a little bit. But what's very interesting is the very last miracle recorded by Mark before Jesus enters Jerusalem is he opens the eyes of a blind man so he can see. They're only 18 miles from Jerusalem. The passion events are about to begin. In light of this understanding, Mark not only hints or describes a physical miracle, but he hints at a spiritual request in the story, and that is to have our spiritual eyes opened to see. But what do our spiritual eyes really need to see? A couple things that I'll just give to you real briefly. Why do we need our spiritual eyes open? Number one, so we can see those around us who are hurting and in need of God's help. Let me take you back to the story real briefly. The crowd some blind Bartimaeus is he's a beggar on the side of the road. Jesus is on the road about 18 miles from Jerusalem, nearing the city. The crowd and those on the road, they had become hardened to those who were hurting around them. So much so that when this blind man was speaking up, son of David, what was the crowd doing? Hushing the man, be quiet. Let this man through, let him, let him get to Jerusalem. Don't bug this man, get out of the way. They had become so insensitive to the needs of those that were closest to them. Sometimes we become blinded to the same hurts and needs around us because sometimes we just become all familiar with everything that's going around that we're so blind to the hurt around us. I don't think it's a coincidence that the last miracle that is recorded by Mark before Jesus enters Jerusalem is he opens the eyes of a blind man because you have this crowd of people who are blinded to the fact that this is a man who desperately needs the, the miracle working power of Jesus in, her, in his life. And all they're trying to do is hush him and quiet him. And so Jesus, he hears the man's request and he, yes, heals him physically so he can see, but I think there's a spiritual element there. We have eyes that are blind to even the hurts around us. And I pray and hope, church, that we don't become so comfortable with where we are in our relationship with God and even as a church, that we become insensitive to the needs right around us, right here in our community, those that are closest to us. It's so easy to get comfortable. It's so easy to be blinded to the fact that there are people around us who are hurting spiritually, who desperately need Jesus. And it's easy to be like that crowd and just hush them and let Jesus do what he's gonna do here in this service and get out of the way. Instead, let's invite those folks to experience what only God can do 
in their life. We need our spiritual eyes open to see those around us who are hurting and need God's help. Number two, we need our eyes open to see our purpose in life as Christ's followers. And isn't that the, the old age question of what is my purpose? What has God put me here for? Why has God put me at this place of employment? Or why has God placed me in this community? Or why has God placed me in this school? Or why has God placed me in this relationship? Well, let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see from a godly perspective why he's placed us where he's placed us. To serve, to proclaim Christ, to reflect his character or just to simply worship him and enjoy him forever. Share before the, the very first line, what is the chief end of man in the Westminster Catechism? The chief end of man is to glorify God. That is to make him known, to make him famous, and to enjoy him, to worship him forever. What is our purpose? Let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see. Number three, let's ask him to open our eyes to not allow hardship or even personal goals to blind us from doing good. Jesus's eyes, they were, they were set on Jerusalem. I mean, the, the passion event is nearing. The cross was very clear. He was just about a week, a little over a week away from the cross. And at this point, Jesus could have just had his face set toward Jerusalem and tuned out everything else that was going even on his journey to Jerusalem. He could have avoided every, quote, distraction along the way and said, you know what? Uh, time's out. I'm sorry. I don't have time for you, Bartimaeus. I got to get to Jerusalem because I have a mission that I've come here for. No, what does he do? He allows the distraction and turns it into an opportunity for the glory of God to be revealed. And so maybe we, uh, there's certainly a lesson we can take from that. It's very easy for us, especially in church leadership, I can say it's very easy for us to be so set on this is the mission, this is what I was called to do, this is why I'm here, and, and I gotta get this done today, and if I don't get this done today, tomorrow's not coming, which is, you know, that's how we think. It doesn't usually happen that way. Tomorrow's still coming, as far as we know, unless Christ returns. Um, but, but the reality is sometimes we, we push away those, quote, distractions, and sometimes it's God saying, you know what? I want you to pause and be still. That's not a distraction. That's a person who I've died for and I want you to speak life into them. I want you to be an Aaron or a her to, to hold up and to prop up their hands and, and fight with them in that battle. So it was very easy. Jesus could have said, you know what? Now I, I've got a mission. I'm moving forward. I don't have time for you, Bartimaeus, but instead he stops and he speaks life into him and gives him sight. Finally, we need our eyes to be opened so we can see God's perspective. How many in this room want to see things as God sees them, amen? I certainly do. I, I, I know that I have my own vantage point. I know that I have my own biases. And, and certainly it's easy to kind of steer in those directions but I, I hope and pray that all of us collectively are praying every single day, Holy Spirit, take the blinders off of my eyes, remove even my biases so I can see as you, God, see. Take off my, my glasses and let me put on your glasses so I can see things from your perspective. And certainly what we would deem as a distraction, God would likely dis discern or see as an opportunity for his glory to be revealed. And I, I want that mindset. 
I don't want to look at somebody as being a distraction to me getting something done or, or somebody else being a nuisance. No, I want, I want to be able to see that person or those people as an opportunity for me to speak life into them, for me to point them to Christ. And that may mean, whether it's on a Sunday morning, that may mean out in the community, that may be while I'm driving, while I'm at work. Um, I, I know there's things that we just want to get done, we want to move on, but maybe God wants us to be still for a moment, and there might be an opportunity he wants us to speak into somebody's life. Task at hand may not be or look easy. The man, this blind man, he was trying to overcome the crowd. They were hushing him, be quiet, don't speak. But he persisted. He spoke louder. Jesus, son of David, mercy on me. Psalm 73, verse 17. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. What a difficult task it is. Some of us can relate with that prayer in the psalmist trying to, why, why are the wicked prospering? But then listen to what the psalmist said. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God. And I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. What's the psalmist saying there? He, he was trying to understand something that, humanly speaking, was impossible to understand. But as soon as he went into the presence of God, into the sanctuary, and as soon as he had an encounter with God, all of a sudden he was able to see from a new vantage point. He was able to have a perspective that he never had before. And where did he get that perspective? Not, not from having a conversation with somebody else, not from just attending a church service. When he went into the presence of God, the sanctuary of the Lord, God gave him a new perspective. He was able to see things that he was not able to see before because he was seeing from a heavenly and eternal perspective. He says, then I went into your sanctuary and finally I understood the destiny of the wicked. Would you stand with me this morning? Worship team, if you would come. Don't tune me out just yet. Here's a question that I want us to consider. You have James and John come to Jesus. Jesus, we want you to do, we have a favor to ask of you. Jesus says to them, well, what can I do for you, James? What can I do for you, John? Blind Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, mercy on me. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? I want to see. So here's what I want to ask us all this morning. Very simply, it's not a hard question, though it may be a complex question. What do you want God to do for you? And maybe I should even put in you or through you. A couple of people in scripture answered this question incorrectly. And sometimes we get the wrong answer to this question. Remember earlier, I believe in Mark chapter six, Herod said to his stepdaughter, give you whatever you want up to half of the kingdom she answered this question wrong she requested the head of John the Baptist Pilate remember what Pilate does just before Jesus's crucifixion he says to the crowd what do you want and what did they choose they chose Barabbas 
to be released and they chose for Jesus to be crucified. So we can answer this question wrong. But what I want to encourage you to do, we're going to end with the song Amazing Grace. And I'm just going to encourage you really in response to this message today to consider and to ask the Holy Spirit this morning, what do you want God to do for you? What do you need him to do for you? Or in you? Or even through you this morning?